Exploring how we can transform our communities in the 21st century with the support of St. Ives Chambers, RHE Global, and me learning. Welcome. This is the Community Safety Podcast with your host, Jim Nixon. Today's guest is a man that grew up in Birmingham in the 1960s and 70s. And during those growing up years, experienced high levels of racism. He went on to be the chief prosecutor for the northwest of England and led on some very high profile prosecutions. Take a listen to a snippet of today's interview. So outside of my home, I had these thugs, far right thugs. The old police had to, GMP had to put panic alarm in my house. I had to teach my kids how to use a panic alarm. They could only go to school in a cab uh, for three months. Um, I was getting thousands of emails and abusive messages, etc., etc. Uh, I came really close to, to a breakdown, despite being at my height of performance. It's now time for the Community Safety Podcast. Welcome to the Community Safety Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Nixon. I've been working in community safety for over 25 years. This podcast will explore how we can transform communities in the 21st century. I'm delighted to introduce today's guest as Nazir Avzal OBE. Nazir was Chief Prosecutor for Northwest England and formerly Director in London. Most recently, he was Chief Executive of the country's Police and Crime Commissioners. During the 24-year career, he prosecuted some of the most high-profile cases in the country and advised on many other and led nationally on several legal topics, including violence against women and girls, child sexual abuse and honour-based violence. His prosecutions of the so-called Rochdale Grooming Gang, BBC presenter Stuart Hall and hundreds of others were groundbreaking and drove the work that has changed the landscape of child protection. Nazir is also the author of the book, The Prosecutor. Nazir, thank you so much for agreeing to be on the Community Safety Podcast this evening. Really appreciate it. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you. Nazir, obviously, we were talking just before we uh, press record, and um, we we both originate from uh, Birmingham in the West Midlands. Um, I know that, obviously, your family came over um, from sort of northern western Pakistan, and you were born in Birmingham. I was just... Always with the podcast, I'm always very interested to find out about you know guests' backgrounds and their early life. And I was just wondering what what your early years were like in Birmingham. Mm-hmm. Um, well, being I was born in '62, so '60s and '70s were um, uh, very strange time for Birmingham. And Birmingham is very modern now, and uh, when I go back there quite frequently, I see a very traditional, it's very um, transformed. Birmingham. Uh, the Birmingham that I knew, sadly, when I was growing up was one uh, where I didn't have neighbours, I had witnesses. Um, there was um, so much crime and uh, antisocial behaviour uh, on our streets. Uh, there was so much poverty. I mean, I was born in inner city Birmingham, uh, in Small Heath, and um, I remember I was in the shadow of St Andrew's football ground. Um, and I, you know, on a Saturday afternoon, I wouldn't go out. It just wasn't a safe place to go out where you had overt racism, you had skinheads on the street. Uh, it was a national front back then, if you remember. Uh, and um, it was a very frightening experience. I had a very loving household and a, a very safe environment 
where I lived. But the moment you stepped out of the door, um, very often you were, uh, you know, you were wondering what you would come back with, whether you had spit all over you or whether you'd suffered some abuse. Uh, and I suspect, uh, Jim, that's had an impact on me going forward, a realisation that I'm a victim. Uh, pretty much everybody I lived with and the communities around me were victims too. And, and they felt... They felt that nothing was being done to protect them, or they certainly, if that was a perception, they were left with. Uh, and it was therefore necessary uh, for us to build community. And the whole point of your podcast is about community safety, uh, the idea that uh, it comes from within, it comes from the people in the community. It can't be done top-down. I've never believed that. You know, top-down is good for creating laws, perhaps, or policies or strategies. But the real answers come within the community. And, and back then, uh, Jim, uh, as a fledgling immigrant community, um, they gained a great deal of solace uh, from working together. My, my father and my mother were immensely supportive of others within the community. Uh, they engaged uh, on a regular basis, providing all manner of support. Uh, and I think we missed that a lot, actually. There, there was, that was something that was very deep and very, uh, very uh, essential at a time when uh, there was so much hate. Yeah, and I think um, that is something that I think we need to start seeing back again, Nazi, you know, if we are to change things. I think what we see at the moment, and I know COVID has obviously hit us quite badly and made us quite insular, but I do feel sometimes that communities nowadays are very insular and it's kind of, well, it's not my problem. It's nothing, unless it affects me, it's not really my issue. That's yeah, kind I of mean, the way that people are, aren't they? You know, if there's any any good, you know, there isn't a lot of good that's come out of COVID. Um, but if there's any good, it's the there has been a real. Uh, I know my neighbours now, when previously I may not have known them. Uh, people have neighbourhood WhatsApp groups, uh, which they previously didn't have. You know, they're a little more looking out for each other than they would have done uh, previously. But that's what it was like in in the early days. People did look out for each other, um, and they gain strength from numbers. Uh, we are a community. Um, I've, I've never liked the concept of community leaders. I don't, I don't have a community leader. I'm sure you don't either, Jim. Um, but I do have a real belief in um, that we are stronger together. And, and that was evident then, and it will be now. Um, I think that we gain so much by rela you know, relating to the people around us and, and providing and receiving support from them. Yeah, I think you're right, and uh, you, you are you are right there, Nizzy. You know, I think that even though with COVID, I do think that I've got to go know my neighbours just a little bit better over the last sort of twelve months, um, and there is that kind of a little bit more togetherness. But I think we do need to go a stage further when we're sort of out of this sort of lockdown and we're back on the sort of the road to recovery. Did things ever get better for you with the racism and the hate crime? Or did it during prior to you going down to London? Mm. Did it did it just stay pretty constant? I mean, certainly during my teenage years or primary years and teenage years, it was pretty constant. I mean, I've written about it in my book. You mentioned that prosecutor starts with a whole chapter or a, pro a prologue of my my being attacked by three guys when I was thirteen years old in Small Heath, and um, and that was my experience uh, and the experience of many, you know. Young people now have access to Google and have access to the internet. I had to go to the library to study uh, and to read. Uh, and so that meant I was putting myself 
uh, in the line of fire more frequently than perhaps others were back then. Uh, but as I said, because I had a safe environment and a safe, safe, loving family home and and neighbours that were looked out for each other, I did feel safe, um, despite the fact that I knew that there was a threat out there. Uh, has it changed? It's more overt. It was less overt. Uh, I think you know, back then it was, you know, you saw them on the street. Now, because of particularly social media and uh, the online world and the online threats, uh, you don't necessarily see your enemy or the people who see you as their enemy. And uh, I think that's worrying and damaging. Um, I think that um, people are um, more divided now than I can recall. Um, I think the trust is in short supply. I don't know, people don't know what to believe anymore. Uh, you, you know, we used to, here's the news, that's the news. We believe the news. But now, fake news has taken hold. Uh, conspiracy theories have taken hold. So people don't really know what to believe anymore. And, you know, I've just been sent some a, a leaflet that people have been given uh, not far away, which is saying that the vaccine for COVID, I can't use the, think of the word, but it's all, it's all about a chemical attack on you. Don't take the vaccine. Uh, and it's being put through the doors of elderly people uh, and putting them in real danger when they see that kind of information being received. That's where we are now, is that um, people don't know who to trust, people don't know who to listen to, people don't know what to believe. Uh, and that, that's why there's a requirement on all of us to be much more uh, relentless in our communication. Yeah, I think it's a key time. It really is that, like you've just said, once we come out of this, you know, it's a key time for us to start to rebuild that trust within communities and try and move forward and learn. I think, you know, we will learn a lot from COVID. And I hope, you know, that we can start to, with some, you know, some togetherness, some collaboration, that we can start to move forward. Um, yeah, that's well, you, really... you mentioned You mentioned the racism and whether or not that changed. The strangest thing, Jim, is that, when even when I was chief prosecutor, I was getting racism. So, you know, being a schoolboy at a comprehensive school, I was getting racism. Uh, being a, being a lawyer, I was getting racism. Being the chief prosecutor, I was getting racism. It really doesn't. Um, it really frustrates me and, and angers me somewhat uh, that um, people, if they want to criticize my decisions, by all means do so. You know, but don't criticize them because of who I am. You know, yeah. time and time again, it's, um, you know, that packy or some other abusive term rather than saying, I don't like what he just did or what he said, which is what you would say about you, Jim. But, you know, I think it's that thing that people move quickly to racism and, and hate and abuse, whereas previously they might be more concerned about the decision itself. Yeah. At the end of the day, Nazir, the way I see it is we are just human beings and we, you know, yes, I get the complexities of life, but ultimately we are just human beings making decisions, going about our business. Why does why does race have to come into it? I just don't understand it. Or you know? gender or disability, or, yeah, really absolutely. protective absolutely. characteristic. But you know, regularly, and you know, you will have had it as a police officer in your former role. You know, people attack you, attack you by all means if you make a mistake or um, whatever it may be, but don't attack you for your identity. You know, that's something over which you have no control. Yeah, absolutely. Nazir, what was the um, 
obviously you've grown up in Birmingham. I know you went to Birmingham University. What was the sort of the light bulb moment for you to the draw towards being a lawyer? Um, as I said, you know, everything was from, we only had two television channels and we had a library. And uh, my parents, uh, because they'd uh, come from the Northwest Frontier, did, weren't able to, we didn't have any, I didn't know any lawyers around me. You know, the only doctor I, I knew was the one I went to uh, when I was sick. The only lawyer was perhaps what I read about. So I might, I read um, To Kill a Mockingbird, uh, and there's uh, Atticus in that, and what a great lawyer he was. I read about Nelson Mandela, he was a lawyer. I read about Mahatma Gandhi, Gandhi he was a lawyer. And I saw all these people making real change, despite, or despite because they were lawyers. Strange as it may sound, if anything, law was just the, the key to the door. They didn't really rely upon the law. Uh, to do bring the change that they brought, and so that I think had a major impact on me. Seeing these inspiring figures, reading even fictional figures, and thinking, well, actually, I want to change the world in whatever small way that I can. I think I can do that as a lawyer, and perhaps I couldn't do that any other way. But you know, I had, there were real conflicts because my, my family wanted me to be a doctor, wanted me to go into science, and, and that's a very common immigrant family response. Uh, I'm damn sure, actually, Jim, at the back of my father's mind, God bless him, he thought at some point they're going to kick us out. And when they kick us out, and we're back in northern Pakistan, I don't need Nazir to be a lawyer. I need him to be something useful in the community, a doctor, a scientist, an engineer. Uh, and I have no doubt that was playing on their minds. But to their credit, great credit, uh, they supported me in my decision. I pursued law. And then I thought, well, actually, let's go. Let's go for it. Initially, I was a defense lawyer for a little while very short time uh, in Birmingham, and then realised that's not for me either. I paid tribute to them. They, you know, I couldn't sit with a suspect uh, who I believe to be guilty and, and provide him with the several level of support. Others can do that, and I, we do need that in our system, and I'm glad they do. For me, I felt it was better to, to join the prosecution service, which was a new organisation at that time, and build the wall of evidence and hope that that will enable us as a community to keep safe by dealing with the offenders within our community. Yeah, I totally resonate with that, what you were saying. When I when I got the call to be a police officer, you know, you do want to go into that kind of profession to make a difference. And I, did, I was actually going to ask you about the defence kind of stuff, because I think, like you've just said, you sort of realised quite early on in your career that kind of defence work really wasn't for you. You were very much, you were very much kind of pulled towards the prosecution side and that justice side of, of things weren't you yeah yeah absolutely yeah. but you know you can't have justice without proper representation for the defense it wouldn't be a fair trial if if the defense defendant uh and you know whilst conviction rates are what 82 percent in them that means 20 percent are not guilty you know uh, and there are, you will know from your experience jim a lot of people make allegations and, and they don't there's not enough evidence and sadly we can point to several examples of miscarriages of justice so we do need strong defence lawyers who are capable of providing that level of representation. It just wasn't for me. You know, I, I found more um, f more fulfilling in building, working with police officers like you, building the case from the ground up uh, and hopefully with enough evidence to be able uh, to convict some of the most um, horrible people. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You... Um... After your time in Birmingham, you moved down to London um, to be obviously with the CPS. What was what was that time like for you down there? How did it's you good. find? It's, it's extraordinary, really. I mean, the nineties was um, 
uh, a, a decade for me, which where uh, I grew so much. Um, we didn't, we, you know, now organizations, rightly, because it's public money, uh, have to have key performance indicators. Everything is measured. You know, you can't do anything without it being measured. In the 90s, less so. It was also before the internet and, and computers. Uh, and so, literally, I was allowed, I worked in central London at the most important courts in the land at that time. And I was given the opportunity, Nazir, it doesn't, it's above my pay grade. It's way beyond your experience. Have a go at this case, you know? Whereas now, nah, they wouldn't, they wouldn't trust me with that now. Uh, you know, you have to work up 10 years, whatever. But back then they were allowing me to take on, and, and to some extent I was grabbing cases, quite frankly, that were, that were interesting to me. Uh, and that, really was phenomenal. London, you know, being a new in, uh, living in London was great as well. Um, you know, I, I don't think London is, is always expensive, but for me, it was um, an opportunity to build my, my skill set uh, at my own speed in an environment that allowed me to develop uh, and grow very fast. Was I right in saying though, at some point though, Nazir, it got to the point where work was sort of, all-consuming down in London, oh. and and there was kind of a decision to sort of make changes. Yeah, absolutely. When I became, well, I was chief prosecutor, uh, assistant chief in two thousand and one, and then chief and director in London. And you know, you're dealing with one hundred fifty thousand cases a year. Uh, I was, and my teams were, and literally, I had no life. Uh, and there's a bit of the immigrant in me as well because my dad never had a holiday. So why should I, <laughs> you know, uh, working seven days a week? I spend my evenings doing and weekends doing community engagement, um, for which I got my OBE. So I mean, it's recognised. But you know, I was giving up all my time for my work. Uh, literally, I was leaving work before my children woke up, coming back after they'd gone to bed. What kind of quality of life is that? And it really, you know, I made a judgment in around two thousand ten. But that's not for me anymore. And the opportunity I presented, there was now a new regional prosecution service. So Northwest was now available. And I uh, was given that, you know, successfully obtained that. And that gave me an opportunity to move to Manchester. And I, I didn't know anybody in Manchester. Literally, I knew one person. Uh, and uh, But it was a new opportunity. And it also meant that, you know, I could literally drive from my home to the office in 20 minutes and park underneath, you know, none of that tube travel. Uh, it meant that I could get back for parents' evenings. I could see my children a bit more. Uh, and quality of life became really more important to me. Uh, but not, you know, as we've learned, as I've, uh, yeah, as people know, I guess, uh, some of my biggest cases arose during this period, um, you know, most celebrated cases. So I was getting good quality work. But I was, as importantly, if not more importantly, I was getting a quality of life. Yeah, I was the same in the police. And as you know, I got to the point where, you know, I could go to work at sort of like leave the house at six o'clock in the morning and I could still be at work at three o'clock the following morning. And it just got to the point where the quality of life just wasn't there and I had to make a decision. And um, and it was a good decision to leave the police after 20 years. But I totally, totally resonate with that. And uh I think my my life has certainly changed for the better since I uh, I sort of left that behind, really, but but still do the work that I do today. Do you know, I'm very fortunate now, Jim, because I mean, I, I left prosecuting in 2015, and I, everything I do now is what I want to do. I, I don't have to do anything for anybody else. I choose a variety of causes or 
um, things that I'm engaged in and involved in. And that's a privilege, massive privilege to be in that position. Uh, but I could, you know, just like you, I have the, not the slightest regret in leaving the prosecution service five years ago. I look back and some of my colleagues are still there. Uh, and I think, how, why, you know? Um, for example, I mean, this is an issue for me. You know, I was chief prosecutor in Northwest England for four years. And prior to that, seven or eight years in London um, in different variety of senior roles. Um, but there are some chief prosecutors, as there are chiefs in other institutions, that have been there for 10, 15, 20 years. You know, I, I thought it was important for me to move on, to let somebody else have the opportunities that I've been given. Uh, you know, chief constables generally have only five-year contracts, don't they? And then they move on and somebody else can step in. But I think the prosecution service needs to learn from that. I know some of my former colleagues have been in chief roles somewhere in the country for 20 years. Uh, and that that might be because they, they enjoy it. I'm sure they do. But it, they need to think, we need to think about the bigger picture. And that's about bringing other people on. And that won't happen if you hold the, the top roles. I, I also got the impression as well, Nazir, from the research I conducted that, you know, you clearly are a very hardworking man. And I got the impression from the research that you probably were getting towards the, the point where you probably could have got a little bit broken if you'd have carried on for more years, really. I think it was yeah. time to take it all on you. Yeah, 100%. I mean, uh, what you mentioned the Rochdale Grooming Gang case. Look, it's not – people don't necessarily know this, but I've tried, after we prosecute that case, and if people watch the BBC film Three Girls, it's, that's about this case. Uh, those men were convicted. Um, uh, people were at the government, other institutions were saying, does he explain what's going on? I explained these, what was going on in terms of sexual exploitation, etc." And then, unbeknownst to me and totally unexpectedly, uh, the far right decided to come for me. Um, even though I was the one that prosecuted these guys when others hadn't, um, they created, this is 2012, they created all this fake news saying Nazir Afzal was the one that didn't prosecute these guys. Uh, and they're followers, their ignorant followers, came for me. So outside of my home, I had these thugs, far-right thugs. The police had to, GMP had to put panic alarm in my house. I had to teach my kids how to use a panic alarm. They could only go to school in a cab uh, for three months. Um, I was getting thousands of emails and abusive messages, etc., etc. Uh, I came really close to, to a breakdown, despite being my height of performance you know that you know i was mentioned in parliament for doing stuff in that case you know uh so technically and this is where the racism comes in technically i was now at, at my height in terms of performance but there were people who wanted to bring me down and they nearly did and if it wasn't for my family and and the people i work with who were i still remember my pa running down the corridor don't show him that letter you know, um, you know, there were people who protected me at a time and that more and more of that was happening. And so the nearer, uh, you know, by 2014, 2015, um, there was also, a, a, I hate to say this, a, a bit of boredom. You know, uh, the names on the front of the files may change, but the evidence is the same. Somebody suffered some significant harm uh, and somebody did it to them. And actually, I wasn't doing anything to prevent that from happening. And I thought it was better, better use of my time and if I've got any time left, to try and do some work in prevention, as you're doing. You know, let's try and make the community safer uh, and public safer rather than deal with the consequences of, of when they've been made unsafe. Um, but I, I, I really got to the, a stage where I, I thought, let somebody else do this job. I've gained as much as I possibly can out of it. Let's look at the rest of the world and see what we can do to protect more people.
Yeah, because you um, at the height of that, even though you were the one that drove that case through, and actually, you know, should have been commended by these individuals for driving that case through. You received was it something like seventeen thousand emails over yeah. a very short period of time in a week, and most of them were templated. So it was, uh, you know, Nazir Azo, um go. You know, you used to be sacked and deported. Um, I joke about it and say, look. Uh, I was born in Birmingham. I don't really want to go back there, you know. Uh, <laughs> I, I love Birmingham, by the way, so don't criticise me. But I joke about it, and it was, it was. I suppose you have to laugh about it. Uh, but as I said a moment ago, he really nearly brought me down. Yeah, talking about bringing nearly bringing people down, and I just wanted to touch on the uh, the Rochdale case. When I was obviously doing my research, and obviously I knew about the case anyway. What was really significant for me was just how um tough not tough but how uh, resilient those some of those girls were in in in, in giving their evidence they were uh, absolutely put through the mill weren't they yeah i mean we we had the, there was no um the guidelines about victim support were just not were just not fit for these young women and girls so we put some bespoke support around them but they were the most courageous people i mean people i remember after, after the case jim people were saying how courageous was nazirazo and i kept saying over and over again i'm nothing compared to what these young girls 16 year old girl being cross examined for six days by 11 barristers shouting and screaming at her telling her she's lying she's lying said I don't know how I could cope. I wouldn't have coped, but she did, and uh, and they did, and they were quite extraordinary. It's a real testament to the police team uh, and the people in children's service and social services and you know the support network and bubble around her, around them. It's a real test uh, credit to the prosecutors and, and police officers who worked on it uh, to bring those people to justice. But at the end of the day, it would not have happened were it not for the strength, the courage, the bravery of all of those young women concerned. Oh yeah, absolutely. It was. Uh, I was very, very uh, in awe of of reading that and just how. I mean, I, having been an officer in the box probably for no more than a couple of hours, and then you look at that and you think, "Whoa!" You know, and yeah. I would. I probably didn't get the same level of cross examination that those uh, girls were receiving. Jim, Jim the, you know, the, the, one of the, the, a lot of good came out of that, and I've, again, it's something that um, you know you talk about bringing change. Once we had seen how that worked, we were, that can't happen anymore. So we sat down with the judiciary. We created something called ground rules hearings. So now, if you are a, uh, if it's a trial of this nature, the judge at the outset will say, "Right, you can cross-examine this person for half a day." I've read the evidence. That's all it takes, and that's all you need. And so we've now put in um, some very strict guide, guide, more than guidelines, instructions as to how to deal with those kinds of cases, and that flows from the way. These young women were really traumatised by what they had to go through. We can't allow more victims to have to go through that. Yeah, absolutely. I uh, I was reading about that the other day, and I think that's such a great move forward because that that whole experience, as we've just discussed, would have been absolutely horrendous, and I think it would have broken a lot of people. Um, great, great sort of groundbreaking case. Um, and, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to say it, Nazi, you know, I know you you sort of say you shouldn't take the credit, but you should take a lot of credit for the way that you forced that through and, you know, had the strength of your own conviction to do it. You know, when you uh, – what my, my, the greatest privilege I've ever had, uh, Jim, is that victims and survivors have trusted me. 
You know, uh, once they have uh, one, one of the things that leaders are really bad at is listening. And you know, I, once I'd listened and heard their stories, there is no way that I would not have pursued it. You know, there is no way that I would not have, and we would not, not have delivered what we tried to deliver for them. Um, what that is the the that's what I'm. You know, they wouldn't have they wouldn't have done it. They wouldn't have spoken to me if I didn't listen. Absolutely. But once I'd listened, I had to do something with it, and you know, that's my character. And that's the way I think we all ought to be like that. I, you know, I look at leaders across all sorts of spheres and uh, I worry that's one. The concept of listening is not one that they really buy into and they should. I think it's one of the most important things. And, you know, as a leader myself, you know, you listen to the people on the ground because for me, every day is a school day. You learn from everybody. And I think it's so important that you listen and you learn and you put that learning into practice. And that's to me is how you're going to make things better and change communities. Absolutely. Um, you prosecuted probably well, well over a million cases. Now, um, <laughs> bit of a big question for you, but apart from the, um, the Rochdale case, is there any other case that really stands out for you? Mm. Yeah. I mean, again, I've written about it in my book. There's a whole chapter about it. Um, and that's, um, Probably the most vulnerable victim, well, definitely the most vulnerable victim I've ever had to deal with, and uh, we've had to deal with. And she was the victim of, of modern trafficking. She was uh, literally a slave in a basement uh, in a home, um, and she was deaf and she was dumb uh, or mute, uh, and she suffered from severe learning difficulties. And she was um, brought into this country at the age of 10. Uh, we were dealing with her with a case when she was 19 or 20. She spent eight or nine years in a, in a cellar uh, being used and abused by the family. Uh, and that was an extraordinary team effort. You know, uh, the council, city council, uh, once we'd identified her, provided, taught her sign language, we put intermediaries in place, we put support in place. That trial took six months uh, and, and she was and remains probably the person who's given evidence longest in the case. She gave evidence for 46 days because she could only answer four questions a day. But it's a credit to our system that we adapted. The judge said, I'm only sitting for four hours a day. Members of the jury, we're only working from 10 till 2. Uh, then you can go home and do the rest of the stuff because this young woman can only give evidence for four hours a day. And so we put all this around her. We we. I don't know. We learned a great deal from how we could we could deal with people who are suffering and as vulnerable as she was. And at the end of the day, those those people were convicted. And that, to my mind, remains um, the most staggering achievement of um, of all of us. It was not me. It was a total multi agency approach. Um, but it says something. I, I've done some international work. I've been doing some international development work uh, around the world. And I was in this country, and I said I gave them this example, and they said, "Well, how much did that cost?" And I said. Well, we didn't put a value on it, but I imagine that this case, prosecution, investigation, would have cost something in the region of two to three million pounds. And they said, for one girl? <laughs> and I said, but, to get, but my point is that it was essential to do that. Justice comes at a cost. Um, and it never entered my head or the heads of the officers or anybody else that this was expensive. 
What was most important is that we brought the offenders to justice, that we provided her with her day in court, days in court, support, everything that we needed to do that for her. And the greatest joy for me uh, out of that, Jim, is that she is now fulfilled. She's now working. Uh, and we also, for the first time in UK history, confiscated their property and gave her, the judge gave her £100,000, and she's been able to rebuild her life entirely. And that's why every penny was worth it. But more importantly, all the effort was worth it. Oh, I mean, Nazir, I read about that case, um, and it's absolutely, I mean, people need to read it in your book because it was absolutely barbaric what that, that young girl went through. And just hope, you know, by sheer luck, the officers were actually at the address for I think it was counterfeit good counterfeit, wasn't it, the yeah, yeah. and um, and found her in the in the basement in the cellar. Well, see, that's and, my, uh, my, the, your, your thing is about your podcast about community, and the important thing to be said about that is that those officers and the Trading Sanders people with them, even though it was not their business, they were there for counterfeit. It became their business. They took her to a place of safety. They could have. Close their eyes. It's not my problem. But, you know, that's my point. Your point about community is that, you know, to keep all of us safe, we need to keep everybody safe. And that means that it, it doesn't matter who it is, where it is. If we see something, if we become aware of something that is harmful or potentially harmful, report it, do something about it, uh, and we can ultimately keep ourselves safe accordingly. I used to get that a lot in the police, actually, in this era. You get people sort of say to me, oh, well, it's not that important. But I said, look, look at an investigation like a jigsaw puzzle. You might just have that one piece that actually fits into place and then it all comes together. And that happened to me a lot. Um, and I think it's just so important. And I always used to say to people, look, if you report it, it goes to nothing. It doesn't matter. It's not reporting that that's the crime in my in my eyes. Exactly. Report it and then we'll do what we can with it. And you know, nine times out of ten, that will probably come to fruition. So I think your point there is absolutely spot on. You know, Jim, I've, I've read hundreds of serious case reviews. You know, those are reviews that take place, stats reviews that take place after somebody has died or somebody has been seriously harmed. And every single one starts with information that should have been shared, wasn't shared. You know, so you're absolutely right. You know, report your concerns. It may be nothing. It may be everything. Uh, and, you know, we cannot afford to, to make it somebody else's business. It's everybody's business. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what it's all about, you know, in terms of building communities for the better in the 21st century. You now, that's what it's all about for me. Um, you talk a lot, and this really resonates with me. You talk a lot, particularly towards the end of your career with the CPS. You were obviously seeing the same people coming through the justice system. You were seeing their families coming through an endless cycle. And, you know, for me, it's it's like we need to change this, don't we? You know, we can't keep going through this cycle. And I just wondered if you've got any thoughts, really, from your point. I know it's a yeah. big question, but do you have any kind of views on how we can potentially change that? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, prevention is the, is the answer. We, need to be, we spend hardly anything on prevention or on rehabilitation. We spend a whole of a lot on investigation, prosecution, incarceration uh, uh, but as you say the prison becomes a revolving door you come in you go out you come in you go out and many of these young men they're usually young men become older men uh, their family members become criminals too and uh, as you say uh, it becomes 
um, just a never-ending cycle. And so how do you break the cycle? Well, you break the cycle in many ways. Uh, and you need to work with younger. The younger that you work with people, the more likely it is that you'll be able to dissuade them from going down a certain route. So, you know, I, I, we, do, we, teach, we teach, for example, relationship education when they're in high school. You know, it's too late. By that time, young men particularly have decided, I, some of them, uh, I need to control women, I need to beat women, I need to abuse women. The, more, the younger we talk to them about human rights and gender equality and uh, hate or whatever it is, the more likely it is that we'll be able to change their minds, their views, so that they don't go down the route of being abusive partners. You know, and that's true of anything. You know, we talk about if we talk to them about the dangers of drugs, the dangers of uh, organized crime, uh, dangers of extremism. When they're young and much younger, we're more likely to prevent them from going being radicalized or being uh, going into county lines or being groomed into organized crime, whatever it is. So the younger that you work with people, the more effective your response will the, the response and the impact will be. Uh, but I think we don't do that enough. We, we don't do that enough. And uh, and also rehabilitation in prison, Jim. If you're locked up for 23 and a half hours a day, spend your six months, nine months, 18 months in prison, you come out, you haven't got a home anymore, you, your family is, you haven't got a family anymore, what's going to happen? You're going to go back to the people who got you in there in the first place. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I talk a lot I talk a lot about early, early intervention, and I'm starting to feel that people are now starting to sort of, you know, stand up and listen to this, you know. And I, I've said, you've got to get into kids so much younger. And you saying that, you know, it, it, it fills me with hope that, you you know, you have a very similar view. We've got to get into kids a lot younger. And I think also one of the big things for me as well is, although I can see it from a teacher's point of view, exclusion i think as well is a big issue as well for us mm, that yeah. kids that are excluded from school are then very very vulnerable to the type of sort of prosecutions that you've done for many years around yeah. exploitation yeah. county lines yeah. you know, we're seeing I mean, a lot of that now it's it's you know, to, to make a difference jim you have to do different things you have to act differently uh and so it's almost like default right this person is is disengaged at school, exclude them, expel them, put them in a referral unit, rather than think, well, actually, let's work with them. Um, we need to do so many things differently, and then we'll have different uh, impacts. If we carry on doing the same old, well, guess what? We're going to have the same outcome. The same thing's going to happen. So absolutely, uh, we've, and it's, it's an investment that will pay. Do you know... It, it costs the country £66 billion a year, domestic abuse does. That's loss of income, tax costs, justice costs, welfare costs, health costs. Just think, if we spend a seismic, a sizable proportion of that in education, early education, support, etc., we'd have fewer of those types of crimes. We'd have greater, less of a cost on the economy, on the country, and more and more people would be safe. It's a no-brainer, but I don't get why, for some people, it seems so difficult. Why do you think there's so many barriers to this kind of work? Because for me, it seems simple. Why do you think that is, Nazir? Because um, we tinker a lot. Um, you know, between 2001 and, um, and 2020, there have been probably about 14 criminal justice acts. There's a, a law every year that amends a sentence here, creates a new offence there, 
whatever, you know? We tinker, 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 rather than let's re-engineer. You know, this government back in, when they, when they were elected in last year, December or December 2019, they committed to a Royal Commission on Criminal Justice. That's what we needed. What we need. We need experts, including people from the community, sitting around a table. What should our justice system look like? Where should we be spending our money? How much more should we be doing in prevention? Here we are, I don't know, 15 months later, and nobody's mentioning it anymore, you know? But there will be a new bit of law that will create a new offence here. We're still tinkering when we actually need to re-engineer. And, you know, I, I, I'll keep on about it. You need to keep on about it, Jim. Uh, where there's a will, there's a way. At the moment, people are obviously distracted uh, by all the other things that are happening, you know, Brexit and then COVID. Uh, but I think, you know, as a society, as a community, we, spend, we need to really look at what our system should look like, not rather than what it is like. You talk about domestic abuse there, Nazir, and uh, it's such a massive, massive issue in this country. And I'm not saying that every young person that, you know, sort of sees domestic abuse as a young age goes on to become an offender. But I think when we look at some of the issues that we're experiencing now in our society with violence, with young people, stabbings, murders, you know, I think when you when I look at some of the kids that I would say are quite broken, when you go back, you can see domestic abuse plays quite a big role in their behaviour later on in life, doesn't 100%, it? Hundred percent. Yeah, I've got about five more minutes left, so I want to say I want to say this absolutely right. Um, I've looked at the histories of terrorists, and you look back at some of them. You'll see misogyny there. You'll see hatred of women. You'll see domestic abuse. You'll see sexual violence, um, and then they end up blowing people up. I've seen organized criminals. Uh, I've seen, uh, you know, serious people who cause serious harm. And you look back at their history, either they're victims or they've witnessed it or they were involved in it. Uh, you know, it's it's almost like a, it's not an entry-level crime uh, because it's so terrible anyway. But it will, it seems to impact, you know, the, the data is, speaks for itself, Jim. One in four women in this country and one in – Eight men of them, I think, have been victims of domestic abuse. One in that's one in four. That's 15, eighteen, you know, ten million women. Um, there are one in five women are sexually assaulted. You know, have, look, just think about that. And uh, and there's data last year um, from the NSPCC and the Office of National Statistics was that there are three point one million adults in this country who were sexually abused as children. That's one. In 20 of us, you know, that is the pandemic that will outlive this pandemic. But if we can do some more work around preventing all of that happening, everything else will, put, will slot into place. Yeah, you, we're, we're so on the same page. Thanks for that, Nazir. Nazir, is there any question that I haven't asked you that you wanted me to ask you? No, Jim, honestly, it's been a real pleasure. I think what you're doing is absolutely essential. We need... Um, our community is more engaged. It shouldn't be seen as the state telling you what to do. This is about our neighbours working together to keep each other safe. That's the whole um, point. That's the whole point of the podcast. You know, it's about professionals like me engaging with professionals like you and just trying to push a little bit of change. Because I'm not going to stick around and wait around. I'm just going to keep working with people like yourself 
and keep doing it. And I think we will make change in, 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 the, in the future. And even if it doesn't happen in our lifetime, at least we've done our bit. Absolutely. Nazir, just before you go, how can people reach out to you? Um, well, I'm on Twitter, uh, at Nazir Avzal, uh, and follow me and I can, we can DM. Uh, I have a website, Nazir Avzal, no dots or spaces, .co.uk, and people can message me that way. Um, but, you know, there are all ma- manner of mechanisms in which people can contact me, and I suspect if they go through you, Jim, uh, you can refer people to me. It's important to say this. I cannot... I do not have the capacity. I don't have a team of people behind me to deal with individual cases. Uh, I get a lot of people on a daily basis saying that they're victims of this terrible thing and this terrible thing. And sadly, all I can do is signpost them for help somewhere else. Uh, There are great people who can do that. Um, What I can do, what I'm interested in and where I think I can bring the change is more on a strategic level. So if you become aware of a blockage, something that's preventing large numbers of people from getting justice, and please, by all means, contact me. Yeah, thanks, Nazir. That's great. And um, just just touching on your book, The Prosecutor, absolutely fantastic read. I'd highly recommend it. I take it, appreciate all the bookstores are shut at the moment, but I presume that's online on, uh, yes, on Amazon. Amazon, Audible, and even more, uh, the paperback version is due out in six weeks' time on the 1st of April, April Fool's Day. And, uh, and Jim, uh, I've just sold the film right, so God willing, in a year and a half's time, Two years' time, you'll see the movie. Yes, I heard about that. That's fantastic. Congratulations on that. Nazir, thank you so much for your time today. I know you're a busy man. Um, this has been an absolutely brilliant sort of conversation. And I think, as I said earlier, we're on the same page. And I think like-minded people like us can force a bit of change. So thank you, you for everything you do. Um, thank you to our listeners today. Appreciate you listening. I'm sure you found this conversation with Nazir very, very enlightening. Um, please like, rate, and subscribe to the Community Safety Podcast. We really want to get our mission across to as many people as possible. So please tell a friend, tell colleagues, share this experience and listening to the podcast, and we'll catch you on the next episode. Absolutely love that interview with Nazir Avzal. So honest and some great ideas about how we can change communities in the 21st century. He made some really groundbreaking decisions around some of the high profile cases that he led on, in particular the Rochdale case involving the sexual exploitation of uh, young girls. Um, Absolutely blown away by this guy. I think, you know, he's had a fantastic career and I still think he's got an awful lot to offer to change communities for the better in the 21st century. Thank you so much for listening again today to the Community Safety Podcast. Please rate, like, subscribe to the podcast. Really, really important that we get as many people on board. So tell your friends, tell your colleagues, and we'll see you on the next episode. You've been listening to the Community Safety Podcast. With thanks for support from St. Ives Chambers, RHE Global and Me Learning. Join us again next time to help us explore how we can transform our communities in the 21st century. century. And the Community Safety Podcast with Jim Nixon. Jim Nixon.